Welcome to The Jolt. It's Friday the 26th of January. I'm Sam Morgan, your host. Coming up later in the episode, Kira will be joining me for our new segment of the show, in which we look back at the week in climate and energy news. A reminder that The Jolt is free to listen until the end of January. Our Monday and Friday shows will still be available to non-members after that, but if you'd like to access the full set of episodes and all of our other journalism and become a part of our growing community, after all, why wouldn't you? You can. Follow the link in the show notes and join the conversation. Now it's time to have a look at the big climate and energy stories making waves around the world. Clean energy provided a record $1.6 trillion to China's economy last year, a larger share of overall growth than any other sector. According to new analysis published by Carbon Brief, China would have missed its 5% annual growth target by a full two percentage points without clean energy's contribution. The report also shows that China's investments into clean energy, around $890 billion, nearly equaled the entire globe's annual investment in fossil fuel supply. Mighty figures once again recorded by China. Check out the show notes for the full analysis. More positive news for the nuclear industry to round off this week. Ukraine intends to start work on building four new reactors this year. In a bid to compensate for power capacity that was lost when Russia seized the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, Ukraine's government wants to massively expand an existing plant in the west of the country. Two of the reactors will be based on Soviet-era technology, while the other two will be US-designed. More than half of Ukraine's power was provided by atom smashing before Russia's illegal invasion began in 2022. Moldova, Europe's poorest country, announced its timetable for renewable energy auctions this year. In April, public tenders for 165 megawatts of wind and solar power will be opened. Moldova is extremely reliant on imported fossil fuels, but is using Russia's invasion of Ukraine as the geopolitical spark needed to rectify that poor situation. By 2030, the country aims to get 27% of its total energy from renewables. I'll link in the show notes to a recent episode of The Policy Dispatch, where I talked with Moldova's Secretary of State for Energy, Karolina Novats. It's really worth a listen, especially if you have Foresight's brand new app. Better information about the true climate impact of air travel is on its way. As of January 2025, passengers will be able to see standardised info about aviation's carbon footprint when they're booking tickets. The European Union's Aviation Safety Agency announced that it will use historical data provided by airlines to calculate carbon efficiency. The environmental labelling scheme is only voluntary. However, airlines that do participate will have to go all in and provide data for all of their routes, not just selected ones with more efficient aircraft. The state of New Jersey awarded two massive offshore wind farm contracts worth a combined 3.7 gigawatts. It marks a remarkable reversal of fortunes for the wind industry on the United States' eastern seaboard, given that Danish developer Orsted cancelled two of its own projects late last year, casting huge doubt on the future of the sector in the US. 
These new contracts include extra provisions that should make it more difficult for these developers to back out. And the state's Board of Utilities estimates that the two projects will bring nearly $7 billion in added economic benefits. The US government outlined yesterday how it will protect endangered whales during wind farm development. There are only an estimated 360 right whales left in the North Atlantic. They are threatened by vessel strikes, the fishing industry, and climate-related changes to their habitat. In a bid to help the massive marine mammals, a new strategy includes measures that will avoid leasing the seabed in areas that could negatively impact whale pods. There will also be a dialogue with the wind industry to keep noise levels during construction works at an acceptable level. Millions of dollars of funding has also been pledged to develop technologies that will help ships avoid whales. Speaking of whales, the country, that is, a planned network of new pylons across some of Wales' most beautiful landscapes has prompted a leading politician to insist that undergrounding cables should be the default construction option. Butte Energy, a utility, is planning a big expansion of renewable energy projects in the west of the country, and wants to make sure the grid can handle the extra power. Adam Price, the MP for the area and the former leader of the Plaid Cymru party, says that burying power cables should be the default option in order to preserve culturally sensitive landscapes. There's also a wider debate going on, as activists claim that this development of power projects will not ultimately benefit Wales, as the energy will be sold and fed into the wider UK grid. There's two issues there that are likely to rear their head time and time again in countries and regions everywhere, especially as more green power comes online. And in the West African nation of Togo, big emission cuts are being made thanks to a scheme aimed at replacing gas-guzzling motorcycles with electric-powered models. The United Nations Environment Programme reports that 3,000 e-choppers are now on Togo's streets, and that bikers are increasingly enthusiastic about their new rides. Just 20,000 battery-powered motorcycles are estimated to be on Africa's roads in general across the continent. The overall market for two- and three-wheelers is close to 30 million, showing the vast untapped potential for quick and easy emissions gains. That's it for your updates. More next week. Now it's time for our new regular Friday feature, as Kira joins me to discuss the past week's climate and energy news highlights. Hi Kira, so it's Friday, here we go again. This week has flown by, I think, faster than an oil lobbyist chasing after a politician. I know, I think it's brilliant. Okay, it's really bad to admit, but this week I have not been able to remember what day it was at all. Like, I literally texted you every morning to be like, making sure that you were doing it or I was doing it so that we didn't just have a podcast space uh, out in the ether. For anyone, I think, that hasn't listened to this particular episode before, Kira and I thought it would be great to round off the week. Then we look back at what's happened and a little bit of what's going to happen as well. Some of our highlights from the episodes we've done throughout the week as well, in case you missed them and want to go back and listen to them. We'd start off this time, I think, with looking just our favorite topics. Maybe we didn't do an episode about it, but plenty happens. Kira, what was your favorite thing from the week or the thing you found most interesting? I think the fact that we accidentally ended up doing something on the importance of the North Sea for energy was 
kind of telling as to how important the North Sea is that both of us ended up covering it. So your episode on the the interconnector between the UK and Denmark and then mine, which came out yesterday on Belgium's use of the North Sea. I think we hear quite a lot about it, but it's often quite hard to visualise this usage of the ocean space because when you see it on land, you think, oh, right, that's a building, right? That's where the road comes through. That's what that is. Whereas with the ocean, I hate to use this word, but it's so much more fluid. Um, So you have kind of all the shipping lanes and the biodiversity. And I think that's what I looked into it in my episode as well, is how these all fit together. Uh, And then actually for an undersea cable, I don't know, but I suspect because it's undersea, like it's kind of out of the way compared to, say, an offshore wind farm. One would hope, with the amount of shipping and other things that crawl around the North Sea, that they are actually out of the way. I mean, uh, we've already seen like pipes and things being hit by anchors and yeah. perhaps uh, more malicious things. But that's something to bear in mind, right? The more stuff that we throw in the North Sea, the higher the chance of, I guess, something going wrong. Yeah, and just need a huge amount of coordination yeah. to be able to, to deal with this. What stood out for you from all the episodes? I think it was big and bad and great news about nuclear this week. We didn't do a specific episode on it because it's it's such a big topic to really narrow down sometimes, but the sheer volume of nuclear-based content this week was quite uh, marked, really. I mean, the International Energy Agency's new report made a big deal about the fact that nuclear output next year is probably going to break the records for, for output with China and India building loads of reactors and France finally getting loads of its plants back online. Even Japan, after Fukushima, has you know public opinion has has switched back to nuclear. So there's this you know we always say nuclear renaissance. Whether or not it's that strong, I, I doubt it. But well, I don't know. I was looking at the the leak of the impact ass- assessment for the uh, 2040 target that the EU's just done, and it does mention nuclear. Which is a surprise from Brussels because you often think, oh, are they are they going to say it? It's the word which no one wants to say in Brussels, but it was there and it was part of the energy mix. The nuanced way of including it in all of these strategies always actually impresses me because it's they manage to talk about it without normally mentioning it explicitly. So yeah, if you ever see clean or low carbon, you know, you know yeah, what you know you're what actually talking looking about. At. I mean, one thing I found interesting about the IEA report was that it mentioned that COP28 nuclear pledge that was made, a triple-in capacity by 2050, but it didn't mention the triple-in renewables one. Um, Dave Jones over at Ember actually pointed that out, that the Nuclear Alliance got four mentions, and I think the renewables one, which was the really big headline, I think, from, from COP, wasn't mentioned at all. I mean, this wasn't a nuclear report. This was, you know, electricity in general. So I thought that was quite interesting as well. It's interesting. That was the good news. Um, But then I think the bad news outweighed it slightly because uh, back home in the UK, uh, EDF, that French energy firm that's building um, a new power plant at Hinkley Point, basically said it's going to take a lot longer than they thought it would and it's going to cost way more money than they thought it would. That was pretty much on the cards. But the sheer scale of the money that's involved with this project and the fact that it could be 2031 by the time it's even even generating any electricity is, I think, a huge way to temper any kind of expectations. Do you know when it was first started construction? Because it feels like it's been going on for my entire life. I think there was uh, some sort of investment or construction decision in 2016. 
And then that's probably that's probably when you know when they put spades in the ground, as politicians like to say. But I mean, the fact that in their worst case scenario that they were kind enough to actually get into, I guess the EDF said that it could be 2031. I mean, their best case scenario is 2029, which is bad enough. But 2031 means that it wouldn't be contributing to say the UK's 2030 targets, yeah, which is a massive hole in in that kind of portfolio obviously so that's you know the government whichever government is in charge soon will have to decide do we have to put more money into this do we have to there's no way of speeding it up really i mean the money has been committed to it edf are doing what they're doing it's not that it's one of those problems that you can just throw cash at so the fact that it's all gone a bit pear-shaped already is um is worrying I would say. And what about in terms of the episodes then? You did um, two this week, right? Which was your favourite one or the one you thought was the most interesting to work on? I think the the two things that I got very excited about because I'm a complete nerd is that I got two leaks uh, of you know, EU draft texts. But really looking at the EU's plan for carbon management and residual emissions, I find fascinating because we've always known that there's going to be residual emissions after 2050. But it feels like the EU is now beginning to actually speak about this. And there's a lot more of a conversation to have about it. I mean, particularly when it comes to which sectors you can allow to keep polluting, whether you can even allow them or whether you have to do that through intense carbon price. So I think that's really fascinating to see the beginning of the EU's thought process on this. And then as well looking at how that might affect the international conversation about this. One of the more interesting quotes that was in one of your episodes, um, which everyone should listen to if they haven't already, was was one of your guests said something along the lines of, look, 2050 isn't the end of the road here. That is when climate neutrality is supposed to happen. But that is when residual emissions and going net negative comes into play and if you haven't thought about all of these carbon management strategies how are you going to scale up industry to deal with it and you suddenly think on december the 31st 2049 right we need to do this now you're 30 years too late and that's why this has to be thought about now so i that putting that into the sort of timeline perspective was it was interesting i thought it is interesting that i think often we see 2050 as the end point whereas for things like carbon removals it's actually the midpoint because we need to prepare for it in terms of making sure that we get rid of residual emissions and then also need to continue that beyond 2050 and I think I mean this is going to be a long time down the road in our careers but at some point we're going to be speaking about post-2050 climate policy and I mean I can't even begin to dream what that might be I think there'll probably be an emphasis on energy security and security of supply chains still because that will always exist. That reminds me of the uh, the previous uh, energy commissioner, Miguel Arias Cañete. Someone asked him about what he would like the world to look like in 2050 when they were talking about the strategy at the time. And he said, I, I don't need to answer that question because if I'm alive in 2050, then I will not be in good shape because he was, you know, he was he was pushing 70 then. So I thought it was quite funny. <laughs> well, it's a good thing for our listeners. Like if you have an idea or if you have a question about where we are post 2050 like, let us know in the contributions because I mean I don't want to have to think about how old I am then what was your episode highlight I mean I'm a bit of an Italy nerd self-confessed I did my Erasmus there always followed like Ferrari and Ducati and various motorsports and stuff like that very snobbish about when you should have cappuccino and what you go on pizzas and that kind of thing um, and I thought doing a little episode about why 
Italy isn't particularly good with electric cars currently would be interested enough. And, and it, I thought it was because there were loads of reasons why they're one of the worst in Europe comparatively. Um, you're going to have to listen to the episode to find out those reasons. But I, I thought it was a really good discussion with some knowledgeable people. But I think the main thing I took about it from from it was that this year is going to be really not particularly good for electric cars in Europe and everywhere in general, really, because of basically legislation, meaning that the big pinch is going to come in 2025. That's when car makers are going to have to do lots of efforts to decarbonize. So it's in their interest not to do it before then, because if Renault sells loads of electric cars this year, their baseline changes and next year they would have to do even more to meet their targets. So having a, a bad sales year in 2024 effectively is beneficial for big car makers, which we saw in 2020, 2019 even when the, the car targets were, were in place then. So as a reminder, I think that car companies that want to go green and get rid of the internal combustion engine do have, um, let's say, an ulterior motive and a hidden agenda, which isn't so hidden. It's about making as much money as possible. But um, they got to do what's uh, best for their business case, I guess. It's when you realize that all of the climate crisis is happening within capitalism. Yes. And that there's always a business case behind these things. And yes, you have regulation that pushes stuff, but actually sometimes it's just, well, if we wait a year, we get more money. Actually, that tied in quite well to the European Court of Auditors report that we had featured in the headlines on Thursday. I won't take complete uh, ownership of it because you sent it to me. So <laughs> I wasn't leaked it, don't worry. It just arrived in my inbox. <laughs> uh, and so seeing them actually go... You know, no matter what you think, we have not made much progress on you know, passenger car emissions. But then saying the one hope is electric vehicles, but then also flagging there are still issues with this when it comes to the rollout of charging infrastructure, when it comes to critical raw materials. It's interesting to tie those two together and see, OK, what happens post-2025 and how are those issues solved? Uh, one sort of nugget that I didn't put in the that episode about electric cars, actually, it was um, Eurostat data about cars in 2022. I mean, they take ages to put this data together. And um, they basically said there's more cars on the road than ever, unsurprisingly, approaching, I think, 300 million cars in Europe, which, again, is a big part of the problem. You can decarbonize cars as much as possible, but the sheer volume of them will remain the big issue that politicians, I think, simply just don't want to engage with at all because any, I think, symbolism or whatever of degrowth is not something that voters are particularly interested in. And we are in a big election year. So that's another well, thing. Well, yeah. And again, it comes back to that when you know climate policy starts impacting people's houses and when you start knocking on people's doors and say, you've got two cars in the driveway. Have you considered getting rid of one? And you know, that that's one of the things we saw with the uh, EPPs, the European People's Party, the biggest group in the EU. Their manifesto actually was interesting, speaking to someone about it and saying, you know, it's sort of, it looked like a commission draft, just a slightly more conservative version. And then every now and then there were just these little drips, like saying, oh yeah, we don't really like the 2035 combustion engine ban. And sort of selling it as that was not how they regulation should work that's it for this week what have you got cooking for next week anything in particular to tell the listeners 
Well, I think it's it's less cooking and more freezing. Um, <laughs> I have a story that I'm hoping to do still, uh, hoping for some things to fall in place about particularly the Texan grid in, in the US and how it deals with cold snaps. We've seen one recently. I mean, it hasn't been as disastrous as the 2021 one that we saw, which, I mean, really made policymakers work out that they needed to, to change things. But it will be interesting to see how much is developed. So I'm hoping to have that next week. If you, again, if you know of anyone who'd be a good person to speak to or you know some information, let me know. And if it doesn't happen, you'll know that it didn't pan out. You're giving them too much insight into what happens behind the scenes, all right? This is all, if the listeners are still listening, this is all very carefully planned months in advance. We don't just do this uh, on the fly ahead of time, not, all right? we just gaslight everyone and say, no, we never said we were going to do that. Yeah, delete, delete the record, delete the record. There's gonna, I'm going to try and work on a bit of a personal one for, for me, for one of my first episodes next week. Um, there's a big steel plant in Wales that is, is basically closing because the owner of it can't afford to run it and decarbonize at the same time that's the logic that's been bandied around and um i basically want to get into whether that's true and what actually is going on there i mean my grandfather was a steel maker in south wales where this is all going on and thought it would be nice to almost go back home and and see something a bit more personal about just transition and things also i've got a bit of like a, a case lined up for how to actually do this properly we'll see if that pans out as well so um tune in next week for that one to see whether either of us managed to pull those episodes off <laughs> i'd be really interested in yours because i mean speaking of someone who has lived in the uk that plant has been on the edge for a while and it kind of got pulled back and now it's fallen through and it's really difficult to to see that impact on on a community like that and work out where the next jobs are coming from and then i mean we followed the just transition quite a lot and the fear is that that happens in other places and governments really need to work out how to manage these changes exactly i mean i think it's probably a bit too late for this particular case for there to be a, a happy ending to this one but if it can act as an example to other places of how to avoid big job losses and you know bad planning bad bad construction times it, it will not be worth it but it will at least have not gone offline in vain you know so um yeah i think the more that we can focus on things like just transition issues that really affect people the more valuable I think uh, the contribution to the energy transition debate we can have. And I definitely urge everyone listening to this to get in the contribution sections to any of our episodes, any of our articles, and, and really tell us what you think about different issues. We're not preaching to you. We're actually opening up the discussion. So I think the more we talk about these things, the more solutions we can come up with and um, the better we can make uh, the energy transition. Many thanks for joining us today. We'll be back Monday through to Friday next week with more episodes, bite-sized updates, and a closer look at an important story. I hope you can join us. Foresight's brand new website and app is up and running, and it looks great. If you'd like to join our growing community and get involved in the vibrant conversations going on about the energy transition, consider becoming a member today. As a little reward for sticking with us to the end of the episode and an end-of-week treat... Follow the link in the show notes. It'll get you one month's free access to all of our fantastic journalism and podcasts. Thanks once again to everyone at Foresight for helping to make the job possible and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the Jolt.